2: that help make what's happening today clearer.
0: Our world has been turned upside down. And on the new abnormal, we'll talk about the people who got us into this mess and how we'll hopefully get ourselves out of it.
3: What a great show we have today. Washington Post columnist Dana Milbank will talk to us about the media coverage of President Joe Biden. Then we'll talk to Zephyr Teachout, who's running for Attorney General of New York. And she'll tell us all about what's important for her run. But first, we want to give a warm welcome to our new co-host, Andy Levy
2: welcome i don't even need to welcome you anymore because you will be as abnormal as i am soon andy levy
0: (laughs) i think i'm already as abnormal as you just not in you know not in name until now
2: it's gonna get worse baby (laughs) (laughs) hang out with me and jesse for a little while (laughs) it can only get worse (laughs) co-host andy levy We're going to talk about libertarianism today. Oh, fun. (laughs) Our segue (laughs) is Thomas Massey, the congressman from Great State of Kentucky, who went to MIT. I have to say, you know, I for so long had so much respect for MIT. Not No, (laughs) So we did a Christmas picture. I don't know if it's his real Christmas picture or if it was to trigger the libs. But a picture of, I guess, a lot of blonde people. I assume his family all of them holding very big weapons. The goal, I think, was to get a little bit of that performative moronics is what gets those small dollar donations in the Republican Party. And I think that was the goal. But I wanted your hot take because Massey, at least historically, claimed to be a libertarian at one time.
0: Well, I actually was a libertarian at one time. I am not anymore. But And I don't even know what libertarianism is anymore because there were a lot of people who I thought were libertarians who somehow managed to align themselves with Donald Trump, which is, I think, as far from libertarianism as I thought libertarianism was. But, you know, with Massey, it's just it's like it was a picture of him and his wife and their kids, but basically it was a picture of they were it was all children. Like all of this is just so childish. And it's just, you know, if it's if it's meant as trolling, like whatever. You're you're a fucking sitting congressperson. You know, do you really, is that, is that your life now? Like that makes you proud when you look in the mirror that, oh, I, I trolled people on Twitter. Like that's your resume. I mean, come well,
2: what's on. really interesting about it is that there was a, columnist from Reason.
0: Yeah, it was, I think Billy Binion is the Reason writer who, you know, he sort of basically said like...
2: Here we go. I say this as a libertarian. When people are confused and ask why I don't like gun culture, I should just show them this photo. They're not handbags. They're machines used to kill people. Necessary in certain situations, yes, but I'm tired of folks acting like this stuff is cutesy.
3: Pretty sane if you ask me. Yeah, he's
0: 100, I mean, he's 100% correct and, you know, uh, which of course gets you in trouble these days. But you know, and as you said, Massey then, you know, replied and sort of and tagged, you know, at reason.
4: <laughs> Which, when
0: someone no, sort of called him on it, he basically admitted he said the donors care. You know, so what he was basically like for a bunch of people who are obsessed with cancel culture, like look at what you're doing. You know, you're going after a columnist and trying to get him in trouble with the donors. And what really bothers me is I, you know, I follow a bunch of people who work at Reason and it's entirely, maybe I missed it or whatever, but I did not see a lot of jumping to Binion's defense and that, You know, struck me as as troublesome and a a little uh, or troubling and a little problematic, you know, again, especially for I just these people who are constantly obsessed with cancel culture, but they don't seem to really want it to go both ways.
2: Well, here's Dave Rubin. Everyone at Reason except for Nick is a tool troll
0: Slash irrelevant. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> I
3: mean, okay. Coming from possibly the slowest person in right wing grifting, which is a real, real feat for for for, for to be.
0: Yeah, I mean, Dave Rubin is not somebody who should ever be taken seriously, and it's unfortunate that he is by certain segments of the population.
2: It's nice that he likes Nick Gillespie.
3: I mean, we all love Nick Gillespie, but Dave Rubin's golden retriever energy is really something to behold. <laughs>
2: But yeah, no, I think it's a good point. They've really lost their shit on the guns. I mean, on everything, but really on the guns, especially.
0: You know, I'm not an anti-gun person. I mean, I was in the army. I, When I lived in Los Angeles, I owned a handgun. You know, I am not a hardcore anti-gun person. But I also, like, this whole gun culture thing is so, again, it's just it's just childish. And it's, it's this fetishization of of weapons of death. It's like...
2: But it's interesting because it does come back to this idea, right? Like last week we had Marjorie Taylor Greene and we had Lauren Boper, both of which are big small dollar donation getters. And we had Lauren said this crazy lie of a story that was extremely Islamophobic about how Ilhan Omar, she didn't have a backpack. So the security guards weren't worried that she was going to blow them up. I mean, It was, like, the most racist disturbing story. And it wasn't even, and of course, according to Ilhan Omar, and I'm sure this is right, it wasn't even true. But Bo has been telling this story all over town for months right. and months. And the goal was small dollar donations. And then Marjorie Taylor Greene injected herself into it because it begot a wave of like, are these the fringe or are these really the mainstays of the Republican party?
0: Right. And the answer is they're the mainstays. They're not the fringe anymore. And the fringe is the mainstay, I think is the Maybe one way to put it.
3: You know, all these Republican strategists said that the extremism gets the money on Facebook. So really, we now know the Republican Party is being guided by the most extreme part of their base. But we do now know that it's not a chicken or the egg thing. It's Facebook that drives this first and then... It's that they follow along with the base because it gets the money, which doesn't seem like it may have a solution. I'm like so many things we discuss in this podcast. What do you guys think? of that? That's
0: obviously true that it gets them the money and it gets them the small donations. But I don't think that's all of it. I think that's maybe even just I think that's kind of a reductive way of looking at it to think that that's the whole game, because I really think that they do want to affect change in Washington. And I think it's you know, I, I think we have to be a little bit careful when we talk about people like. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert as as just like oh they just they just want to raise money off it and yes that is obviously a big part of it but they do have agendas and they do want to get those agendas passed and so I I think you know it's sort of at our own peril that we dismiss them as I think for a long time we did and I think I think people are starting to take them a little more I hate to say seriously but not their ideas but the fact that they exist and are there.
2: Right. No, I agree. And I think you, you make fun of them at your own peril.
0: Well, that's the thing. And they're easy to make fun of because they're fucking idiots. And they're idiots in what should be <laughs> just an incredibly, obviously goofy way. but And, and yet they have support you know, because this is where we are now. And, you know, Kevin McCarthy doesn't give a shit and he, you know, he's fine with it. He's made that clear. And, you know, he'll occasionally, you know, make some sort of, uh, half-assed gesture at, at, at sort of a wrist slap. But, but generally speaking, he doesn't care because, you know, again, the money's coming in and they're part of his caucus,
2: What's happening here is McCarthy, he's being Trumpy because he thinks Republicans are going to win back the House, which a lot of people think, and he wants to be the speaker. He wants to be more Trumpy than Paul Ryan. He's also quite stupid, I think it's fair to say, I, but he doesn't want to get replaced by a Jim Jordan. Now, he happens to be friends with Jim Jordan and is working really hard to placate the Jim Jordan side of the caucus, which is quickly becoming all of it. But I'm curious to know what you think. Where does this end?
0: Unfortunately, I do think it ends in 2022 with Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House. I think it's going to be it's going to be a miracle if that's not the case. And and I don't mean that it'll be, you know, some other Republican. I mean, it'll be a miracle if the Dems Democrats the retain yeah. control. But, you know, Kevin McCarthy has made this sort of, you know, he has no principles. His only principle is power. And he's made that deal. And, you know, and and that's what we're seeing now. And he's going to continue making that deal. You know, he is not uh, he is not uh, anyone that the Democrats can deal with. I I don't think, you know, and and I am sure. No, of course not. And that's, you know, and that's where we are. You know, at this point, I would say there's probably a better chance of dealing with McConnell than with McCarthy, which is, you know, Damning That's with, you know, incredibly faint praise, like praise so faint most, you know, <laughs> anyone over thirty can't hear it. But it's, you know, I I do think if you, you know, if you put them next to each other, uh, McCarthy has, you know, a, and maybe it's a bit of an upset, but he's uh, so far. In terms, he is the bigger asshole right now, you know. Yeah. I, I think than McConnell,
2: which is pretty disturbing.
0: No, it really is. But that is because I do think I, I think the House gives you a better sense of where the Republican Party is yeah. nationwide than the Senate does. And you know, for look for obvious reasons, there's a lot more of them. You know, I don't. You know, our our listeners are very very smart and they know what I mean. <laughs> but, but but I do think you know. So I think you look He's to the House as
3: it's, this is a good start. I, I, I like this. This is a good entrance. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. You know, I'm not, I'm not above it, and I don't pretend to be. Uh, <laughs> and if anyone says I am above it, they're lying. <laughs> the House, to me, is where you look to see where the future of the Re- Republican Party is in right. this country. And, and that is, you know, fairly terrifying right now. I mean, you've got Kinzinger, who, you know, whether you agree with him or not on a lot of issues, has shown himself to be a fairly principled guy. Yeah. And he's leaving. And, you know, you've got Liz Cheney, who, again, I never want to turn Liz Cheney into a hero. But for simply <laughs> saying that the election wasn't stolen, the Wyoming Republican Party, you know, no longer recognizes her as a Republican. Yeah, yeah. And this is where the party is going. And this is, you know, and, and McCarthy, as dumb as he is, he this is like the he's like a savant. Like the one yeah. thing he's not dumb about is, you know, gaining power and and reading the tea leaves. And he knows right. what's going on. And, you know, so he he has gone from someone who was like, you know, again, sort of sort of fairly libertarian ish, maybe earlier in his career to someone who has just gone full on Trumpy and he doesn't care. It's a game to him. It's a game of power for him.
2: Since you have renounced libertarianism on this show, I'm going to talk about my worst hot take ever, which I'm still apologizing for. It's been like 500 years. But you know what? The thing is. I'm sober 24 years, so I have no problem admitting that I was wrong about something. So, you know, take that (laughs) right wing medium and media. And then my husband just walked by and goes, except in the bosom of the family. So, fuck him, man. I need an office with a goddamn door.
0: That's not the lesson you should take from that, Molly.
2: I was wrong about Andrew Cuomo. In February 2020, March, April, April 2020, when I said he was a good anything, I was wrong. I've written now two pieces uh, where I've said I was wrong. I was definitely wrong. The guy is an endless font of scumbaggery. But this is not even about Andrew. We're, we've moved on to Chris. <laughs> what happened, man?
0: I would like to state for the record that I was always right about Andrew Cuomo. <laughs> And I was always <laughs> right about Chris Cuomo.
2: Yeah, same, same. <laughs> tell so tell
0: us your Chris
2: Cuomo hot take.
0: My Chris Cuomo hot take is he should have been fired a long time ago. He should never have been allowed to have his brother, the governor, on as a guest on his show. That was one of the most embarrassing things I have seen on cable news. And that is really, really, <laughs> really saying a lot. I worked at Fox News for 10 or 11 (laughs) years, and that is one of the most embarrassing things I've ever seen on cable news. (laughs) Everything he did was a direct violation of the most journalism ethics 101. My jaw was just continually dropping. And then, you know, he, he, so he, he should have been at the very least, he should have been fired when it first came out that he was helping his brother while still on the air at CNN. And I've said this before, you know, he, he talks a big game about, you know, he wants to make this about helping his brother and, you know, and, and unfortunately we saw some people in journalism sort of, if not leaping to his defense, but basically saying, well, I would help my brother out if they were in, in trouble, <laughs> you know, and sort of not pointing out that, first of all, what he was helping his brother out with was trying to, you know, dig up dirt on people who accused him of sexual harassment, which if you would do that for your brother, I yeah, you shouldn't do that for even for your brother.
2: <laughs> it was That was such an interesting moment because, I mean, nobody asked them. You know, there was a perfectly good opportunity not to get involved in a terrible scandal, and they did it anyway.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. They, they couldn't help themselves, basically.
2: Yeah, nobody asked you. That has nothing to do with you. Like, just sit it out, man.
0: Right. Family first, job second. That was what he kept saying. Then take a goddamn leave of absence from your job. And help your family. Because you know what? In journalism, it can't be family first job. There there are a lot of jobs where, you know, fortunately or, or unfortunately or not, it can't be family first. And you can't throw out your ethics at a job. For a family member, you can take a leave of absence from your job, which Chris Cuomo could easily have afforded to do, by the way. This is not some, you know, this is not some poor person who has to keep working while helping their family. This is an ungodly rich person who couldn't even take, you know, because he couldn't bear to not have his mug in front of people every night, (laughs) you know, lecturing us while he was, you know, doing horrible things. So he should have been fired, as far as I'm concerned, back then. You know, the fact that he was fired now, great. I don't think, you know, Jeff Zucker's statement that this was a tough decision. Well, it shouldn't have been a tough decision. I know what you mean. It's a guy you've employed for a number of years. But sorry, this was not a tough decision. He made it real, real easy for you, Jeff. You know, this was not a borderline case. There's no plaudits here for CNN. For doing what they should have done a long time ago.
2: I mean, for me, in my mind, I just always thought there was so many problematic conflicts, you know. And then there was also allegations of sexual harassment. You know, I just don't understand. There are so many talented women and men who are in the cable news space. It's okay to have someone new. It's not the Supreme Court.
0: Yeah, and other people, you know, I'm not the first to point this out, but... It's not like Chris Cuomo was Walter Cronkite, you know, or someone where you're like, well, and again, if Walter Cronkite had done what Chris Cuomo did, he should have been fired too. You know, I'm not I'm not saying he shouldn't have. But he's, it's not even that. It's, it's basically, you know, baseball has this metric wins above replacement, which ranks a player by like how many wins they get their team above what like sort of an ordinary player would get them. And if you did that for cable news, I don't think you're sitting there going Chris Cuomo's wins above replacement or ratings <laughs> above replacement. Is that fantastic? He's not like this is the guy you're going to the mat for. You know, he's not a generational talent. And like you said, Molly, there are a lot of people who could do the job as good as, if not better than him. And many of them are, you know, I know this is a shock. Many of them are not even white guys, you know. So to keep a guy around who has all these issues and, you know, believe me, the the, the sexual harassment stuff that's come out about him, I'm not at all saying that CNN knew about those before this investigation. But his reputation was not minty fresh before these things came out you know there were there were stories that would go around and whatever and i, I don't know if they're true or not but but there were definitely stories about him
2: i'm going to save you from having to finish that sentence cuz who knows I- but As someone myself who has been a beneficiary of nepotism, right? I had a famous mother, and I love to talk. No, listen, man, I'm not a fucking hypocrite. I'm who I am, right? I had a famous mother, famous grandfather. I mean, not as famous as Mario Cuomo. But, you know, they didn't have a catchphrase or anything. They weren't governor of New York, but they were famous. Nobody gives a fuck. Like, just fire him. Who cares? You know, it's a nice novelty. It's fun for party games. But if you're not, you know, it's. I guess it's relevant for Jeopardy or whatever, but it really doesn't make you any better at anything than anyone else, so why the fuck do it?
0: Yeah, I just, I want uh, I want a Ryan Murphy show on FX.
2: Oh, I was just thinking that! I have to say, <laughs> when it came down, I was like, I would watch the hell out of a Ryan Murphy show about that.
0: Yeah, it would be called uh, The Family, you know, or, or something like that, and it would be, I think, John Turturro <laughs> and Bobby Cannavale, As Chris and Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) And then you bring in Al Pacino as the ghost of Mario Cuomo, (gasps) who like, you know, pops up to give his kids advice in various situations. (laughs) And I would watch the hell. I don't even like Ryan Murphy and I would watch the hell out of that.
2: I mean, I would watch that. That would be incredible.
3: The the only, only thing I don't like of this is thinking of all the conservative takes of we used to represent Italian culture <laughs> by showing people killing each other and doing <laughs> manly things, yeah, and now it's I all don't about think translation. That would happen <laughs>
2: because conservatives hate the Cuomos.
3: Yeah, well, you know, but they'll do anything to win a point against the Hollywood liberals. Yeah, you did see some people on Fox News. You saw Tucker Carlson kind of defending them.
2: Yeah, I'm shocked.
3: Hey, folks! If you haven't heard, every single week we do a special bonus episode for Beast Inside the Daily Beast membership program. Sometimes we interview senators like Cory Booker or the folks who explain what's happening behind the scenes in media like Jim Acosta or Soledad O'Brien. Sometimes we just have fun and talk to our favorite comedians and actors like Busy Phillips or Billy Eichner. And sometimes we just have friends around to analyze what's happening in the news. You can get all of our episodes in your favorite podcast app of choice by becoming a Beast Inside member where you'll support the Beast's fearless journalism as well as getting full access to podcasts and articles. To become a member, head to newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. That's newabnormal.thedailybeast.com.
4: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about Work.
1: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
3: Dana Middlebank is a columnist at The Washington Post.
2: Welcome to the new abnormal, Dana Milbank.
3: Thank you, Molly. It's a pleasure.
2: I'm very excited to have you. The first thing I want to ask you, and I may have made this up, but I really want to talk about it. Were you an inspiration for a character on Veep? <laughs> or is that urban legend?
1: like the way you your mind works. Uh, no, not to the best of my knowledge.
2: Oh, okay. You weren't. Okay.
1: Is there some sort of cynical hack character?
2: He's very difficult on the administration, and you've never seen it?
1: I, yeah, I've, I've, I've seen the show. I haven't like identified with anybody.
2: Leon West. I was always told that Leon West was uh, based on you, but obviously not.
1: Wow. Well, I'd, I'd be honored if that were the case.
2: So anyway, I wanted to talk to you about your piece last week. Or was it this weekend? It was Saturday. It came out on Saturday. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it published uh, on the web Friday, and it's in the Sunday newspaper, which is that thing that uh which i know (laughs) land on people's doorsteps (laughs) with with lots of uh supermarket ads and and car ads in
2: it exactly explain to our listeners what you did because it's pretty interesting
1: yeah so i mean we've always talked about you know is the Media to negative to positive, and for the most part, it's all just you know speculation because it's not really something you can measure. Pew Research Center does the first three months; they have you know I guess a bunch of interns sit down and go through the process of analyzing every article, which sounds dreadful. But you know, artificial intelligence allows us to do what they call sentiment analysis. It's usually done to analyze investment language so, you know people know what where to put their money so i asked people who do this uh, it's, the company's called fiscal note big information company i asked them to do an analysis of the uh, press coverage of biden and the press coverage of trump you know they Look through some uh, 200,000 articles, tens of millions of words, 65 publications. You know, there's all, all kinds of algorithms about the adjectives, where they are in the story, where they are relative to a candidate's uh, or or the president's name, all kinds of considerations like that. And they come up with a negative or positive on a scale from minus one to positive one. You know, the, the, the sort of the headline finding was for the last four months, Biden has been getting... As negative as cover- the coverage that uh, Trump got, and in some cases more negative uh, in certain months, particularly uh, August, than uh, Trump got during uh, the same four months in 2020. And you, you know, remember what that time was when he was embracing uh, the Proud Boys and QAnon, and you know undermining the Postal Service, and then refusing to commit to the uh, accept the results, and then free- refusing to accept the results of a free and fair election. So I think it's pretty. Uh, startling that we collectively in the media have been as negative on Biden and in some cases more so than we were on Trump during those infamous four months last year.
2: Yeah, it is. Now, the methodology here, mm, what do you think?
1: Well, look, I mean, people say there are problems with sentiment analysis and, you know, it's, it's not a human being, so it can't really tell. And I'm not really disputing that. When people say you know it, there's a lot of problems, but on the other hand, it's it's compared to what we don't have any we don't have any other tools. Um, I do note that uh, you know I, I mentioned the Pew Research Center does the first three months of a presidency, the first 100 days. The artificial intelligence study that I had done is consistent with that Pew finding. So that gives me some comfort. I mean, another issue that can be raised fairly, I think, is we're comparing. Biden's first year to Trump's last year and also to 2019, that wasn't to, you know, cook the books in some way. It's basically because the database doesn't go back to 2017. They incidentally are trying to expand it so we can get that kind of a comparison. But if anything, you would think the coverage of Trump in that final year when all this craziness was going on would have been more negative. So I think in in, in that sense, it doesn't uh, really disrupt the finding. In fact, it it makes it all the more startling.
2: Right. And it's impossible to live in this media ecosystem without being like something is very wrong here, right? We have found ourselves in a place where there is a lot of negative coverage of Biden in ways that I didn't even think were possible.
1: Yeah, it, and it is interesting. It's a in, you know we are the negativity about Biden is different. And so with Trump, it's like this is really bad that the president of the United States is trying to overturn democracy. And now we're saying, boy, this is really bad that Biden can't uh, get his. Majority in Congress to enact his social infrastructure bill. They're not exactly the same thing. I mean, look, there is a problem in the media now, but I think we've come by it honest in the sense that we're in this uncharted territory here. We're, you know, we haven't in any of our lifetimes been in a, a situation before where. There is a major political party in the United States that is basically not participating with our democratic institutions, is trying to disenfranchise voters, to tighten uh, the electorate, uh, and is just consistently using the most outrageous lies and conspiracy theories against uh, Biden and the Democrats. And I think we've sort of gone back to our old you know, pre Trump default and say, well, there's two sides here and. But it just doesn't seem like that works. I don't think anybody's doing it in some sinister way. There, there's certainly no conspiracy in the press. I just I just think the old methods don't really work here anymore.
2: I don't think of you as like a crazy, woke
1: activist. I'm crazy, <laughs> Molly, but I don't have any pronouns whatsoever.
2: But you've also been at this for about 20 plus years. So you've really yeah. covered a lot of politics. And I think that's an important thing to talk about when we talk about this because, for example, I know that a lot of people on the left considered Bush to be a war criminal, but he's not the same as Trump.
1: Not at all. And, you know, I covered George A. Bush's first term for The Washington Post as a regular White House reporter. And you know, I was I was pretty tough on them the way I think a journalist should be. And, you know, we fought like cats and dogs. I, I have to tell you, now when I talk to Andy Card or, or, you know, any of these people who are in the Bush White House, I say, remind me what everybody was fighting about back then, because it doesn't right. it doesn't seem at all important. Uh, and they agree. I mean, you know, in the in the fight we're in today between democracy and authoritarianism, we're all on the same side, the people who worked at the Bush White House. I mean, maybe there are a couple of exceptions, but most of them and me. And I, I mean, and I don't think there's anything wrong with journalist you know i'm a columnist but you know regular beat reporters taking sides in the struggle between democracy and authoritarianism between fact and fiction it's just like you know traditionally we're not partisans but you can be a partisan for the facts and you can be right. a you know a, a partisan for democracy I, I think we have
3: to be
2: i think that's really an important point
3: so data you had a tweet that piqued my interest after ryan Lizza was pushing back on your piece a little bit that it's interesting that germany's axel springer completed its takeover of politico on october 18th and that's exactly when politico took its sharply negative turn against biden can you give us some background on this and like what you're seeing here
1: yeah and let me take a, a step back from this um ryan Lizza is an old friend of mine we worked at the new republic together you know starting
2: 1998. You guys are so old.
1: And we're friends. I was startled by his reaction, um, and I didn't mean to. You know, I mean, I I, I wrote about Politico playbook. I didn't think he or they would take it personally, but I can see why they did. So I, I I accept my responsibility for starting that brawl. And I want to be clear. I think Politico is an offender. I think the Washington Post is an offender. I think we. Pretty much all are in the media. So I didn't mean to say they're worse than anybody else. They're not. They're worse than some. They're better than some. But uh, this is a media-wide problem. This is not a a Politico problem. The narrow point I was making about Politico is they took a distinctly negative turn uh, in November. So I was doing a little bit of conspiracy theory-mongering there. And you know what? It's not right when others do it, and I shouldn't do it either. So there are plenty of other reasons to explain Uh, why they would have gone negative at that time. And and from what I understand, Axel Springer is pretty hands-off, so.
2: Yeah, except when it comes to Israel. But I've read other reporting which says that a lot of the Biden administration coverage turned sharply negative in around August.
1: Yeah. And you can see why that was the messy Afghanistan uh, pullout. We started to focus on the inflation problems. You know, the Delta wave was at its high uh, flow at that point. Uh, you know, you can kind of understand that. And that was the most negative month in the analysis uh, for Biden. But it Hasn't really returned to equilibrium now, you know, and and maybe it is the media as usual, just sort of follow the polls. But I think it's, uh, you know, chicken and egg. And I think the media also drive the polls. So I think we're in that kind of a rut now and looking for bad news, you know, very excited if the jobs report is, is is not good kind of not so interested in it if it is good. You know, we've been here before.
2: At best, it's news bias. At worst, it's bias bias.
1: Right. I, I mean, I don't I don't even know, you know, the, it, I, I'm talking about sentiment as opposed to bias because I don't know, you know, we can't know what's going on in people's heads. We can only know what they type out of their computers. But I think it's basically we've just, re- it's nothing nefarious in the sense that we've returned to our roots of just being sort of adversarial journalists uh, you know, we like conflict and there's really nothing wrong with that. But, you know, the conflict now is between, as we were saying, democracy and its opposite. I think that's the conflict we need to be focusing on, not the Republicans are blaming Biden for COVID deaths now after you know spending the year discouraging people from getting vaccines. So they're dying. So it, we're silly to be uh, neutral in that kind of an argument.
2: It is interesting to me that we have a right wing media that is completely focused On GOP messaging to the point of like, you know, the Washington Free Beacon is basically an oppo shop. They found this story of the Veep buying these copper pots. They wrote it up. It went to Fox. It was retweeted by the GOP. I mean, there is a real messaging arm on the right.
1: Oh, yeah, I think so. And there is not the equivalent on the left. That was the interesting. Another interesting thing about the analysis is uh, you would think that the The right wing outlets would get uh, particularly negative on Biden, but the left wing outlets would get positive. It doesn't work that way because the left wing outlets are not partisan. They're ideological. So they've been taking wax at at Biden for not being progressive enough. So uh, it is a very different thing. There's a partisan media on the right. You know, even, you know, august publications like The National Review, which were, you know, William F. Buckley, it's now a shill for Trumpism. Uh, which is astonishing to me. We don't really have that on the left. They're, they're certainly ideological, but they, they, they are not do not see it as their role at all to defend the cult of Biden. It's even funny to say cult of Biden.
2: Right. There is no cult of Biden.
1: <laughs> no, everybody's after him just for different reasons.
2: Right. It is interesting. I'm writing about how the media has failed to cover the fall of Roe. With the kind of gravitas it should have, what do you think the failure here is? What could you do to fix it?
1: Well, this is a little different from democracy versus uh, authoritarianism. I mean, this is in the you know this is within the bounds of uh, of argument, but I do think a lot of the row coverage has been you know who's it going to benefit. You know, do, will there be a wave of uh, you know outrage among women that'll benefit Democrats next year, or uh, will that not, in fact, be the case? And that may or may not happen one way or the other. But we have had, as the justices say, a, a super precedent, and there's most people alive today do not remember an America where men did not have access to uh, legal abortion. It's an enormous societal change that the Supreme Court is about to bring about. And uh, I think that's getting lost in sort of the calculations of uh, you know who, who wins, who loses in the, in the short term, whereas it's, this is much bigger than partisan advantage.
2: Yeah, so interesting. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: It has been my pleasure, and I look forward to reading your excellent newsletter.
3: Zephyr Teachout is running for Attorney General of New York State.
2: Welcome to New Abnormal, Zephyr. Hi, I'm so excited to be on. Great to talk to you. We're excited to have you. The first thing we have to talk about is you were right about Andrew Cuomo.
4: Yeah, obviously I remember very clearly when I decided to run against him. And frankly, it was a little scary because it it wasn't just, this is back in 2014, And I chose to run against him for several reasons, including that he refused to enact campaign finance reform, refused to do anything for kids um, in terms of what was happening with school funding, uh, was shutting down an anti-corruption investigation uh, before it really got started. But, you know, so I was making this decision, I, I made the decision to run against him because we had Real substantive differences, and I really believe New York deserved a lot better. But I got to tell you, his reputation for vengeance and retaliation was so strong that it was a little scary. Um, and that after I started running, I would hear these stories, and I continue to hear them about, you know, if I would just talk to somebody, they would get a call from Joe Prococo, <laughs>
2: who is for the for our dads explain who joe prococo is
4: prococo was andrew cuomo's right-hand man who is now in prison for bribery (laughs) (laughs) but at the time everybody knew him as andrew cuomo's right-hand man cuomo said he's like a brother to me and he would call people for talking to me. I mean, I wasn't getting endorsements. This was this was for having conversations to say, what are you doing even giving her the time of day? So, you know, I am really um, happy that Andrew Cuomo is no longer the governor of New York, but I am. It's hard not to be a little sad about the lost years. You know, like New York is just so much better than Andrew and his economic development policy alone. This isn't technical stuff. This is money that went to donors instead of going to places that really needed infrastructure support. You know, there's a real lost years in New York from um, years of bad, of you know, bad leadership and abusive leadership and represented on a personal and power level, a really toxic style. I don't even want to use the word style. That's way too generous. You know, (laughs) a really abusive approach, a use of power for his own ends. And I think it's really important that we connect the sexual harassment and retaliation with the nursing home cover up, with the use of public power and of public resources to write his own book, to make himself rich. Cause these are all just using the governor's office and the power of the state as an extension of himself. So that's one part of Andrew Cuomo, but the other part, which I think you're talking about Molly is the way in which, he basically parroted a lot of Ronald Reagan talking points. You know, he was a trickle-down, he had a trickle-down approach towards the economy. It is important to insist on leadership that recognizes that t- trickle-down is often just another, you know, just another way basically to talk about cronyism. And we do have to demand like real actual results for poor and working class people, uh, for the environment, for kids. Um, and not just, not just a D, not just a D.
2: Yeah. I want to talk to you about your antitrust piece in the Atlantic, because that is something we've really had a lot of problems with. And it seems like there's not a lot of solutions. What's your solution?
4: Oh, there's a lot of solutions. This
2: <laughs> is Okay, let's hear them.
4: Great. Yeah, there's some intractable problems. This is an area where there is so much that can be done and is starting to be done, and it's so exciting. And a little tidbit here, in 2014, when I ran against Andrew Cuomo, I had a running mate, Tim Wu, who coined the term net neutrality, is also a great trust buster and is now at the Biden White House. Oh, interesting. Yeah,
3: I was really excited about that they tapped him because he's such a great mind.
4: He's truly ahead of the curve, has already done really exciting things at the White House. So here's the Shakespearean 30 seconds history of antitrust. You ready? Yes. <laughs> okay. We have a hundreds of years of history of understanding you can't allow concentrated private power. If you allow sort of the Pipes to be owned by a handful or one company, it's really bad for consumer prices. It's really bad for workers because if you work in that industry then the three bosses are all winking at each other and suppressing wages because you don't really have anywhere else to go. And it's really bad for democracy. It's also really bad for innovation. Like if everybody who's running advertising is basically working for one of two guys named Bob, if you follow up the chain because of the mergers and the advertising sphere, guess what? You're going to have less interesting advertising because everybody's trying to work for Bob. So it's, it's bad for all kinds of different things. Everybody understood this You know, significant debates, but these were the core principles, workers, consumers, and democracy. And then in the late 1970s and early 1980s, all of that history was just chopped to pieces, largely by Reagan, but not just by Reagan. We've got to be clear, Democrats have been involved in this too. And we have for 50 years now lived within a system where antitrust is really just for Outlier cases, it's hard to stop mergers, you rarely engage in divestitures. And actually, a lot of the antitrust enforcement isn't just around mergers and divestitures, but banning abusive business practices, like things companies can't do. We, for 50 years, we just haven't been doing it, not in a serious way. And it's, you know, talk about the power of ideas, it's because of this wrong idea that antitrust is just about quote unquote, efficiency and consumer welfare. And I I and Tim and uh, Lena Kahn before she um, became the new chair of the Federal Trade Commission, Jonathan Cantor, before he became the new head of the DOJ antitrust division, Barry Lynn. I mean, there's so many people have been pushing to say, we've got to change this entire way of thinking, ramp up enforcement, uh, fix our laws, and get back to a more equal and fair economy. And we do that through, uh, this is a long answer to a short question. <laughs> I obviously, I have a lot of thoughts on this, so cut me off when you, if you have a question. We, we get there through two basic ways. One is actually enforcing the laws on the books, and the other is through improving the laws. You know, there's there's a lot of things that you can be anxious about. This is an area Biden has been a real leader. Oh, that's good. Now, it's not just the appointments. I mean, we were just talking about Wu, Tim Wu at the White House, Lena Khan at the FTC, Cantor at the DOJ. He gave a killer speech this summer. And he talked about how the last 40 years of antitrust policy had failed, failed. And my jaw dropped when he used the word failed. I was... Jaw dropped and cheering at the same time. Yeah, um, and then he talked about how its incredible impact on workers. That yeah. you know, it's basically led to thousands of dollars a year of workers' wages being stolen because of the concentration in our markets. So he's showing real leadership um, in this field, and that's exciting. But what, what's exciting to me, as I'm running for to be the next Attorney General of New York, is when you look at antitrust enforcement, you've got the DOJ but then you've got New York and California are really really key in enforcement and we can really make a big difference uh, in New York but also in setting the terms for what's acceptable acceptable in the country and yeah I just want to triple underline what Biden said this yes this is about consumer prices and right now look we're seeing you know the prices of diapers are rising the prices of basic goods are rising and as Robert Reich has talked about this is about concentration in the markets. that's one of the key reasons we're seeing rising prices and it's about workers who've seen these stagnated you know stagnated wages and abusive terms we've We've got to be much more aggressive at trust busting,
2: yeah, and I mean, I think one of the things that maybe Biden hasn't gotten enough good. We're talking about media coverage a lot here enough good coverage about is how he's really been very unapologetically pro-worker.
4: Yeah, I agree. You know, when you look at what's happening in the Department of Labor and, and Biden himself, I'm just going back to that speech, but you can tell, and I, and I talk to people who know him, that when he, when he talks about non-competes, Biden is just like, what the hell? <laughs> you know? and, and he's right. Why do we allow... Companies to say you can only come work for me if you agree to not work in this field for a year. If you if you quit, I mean, what the hell? And 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 I don't know the exact phrase, but 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 I think he's really good at uh, being a real champion uh, champion for workers. And Lord knows we need that.
2: I wrote a lot about the sexual harassment stuff at Fox and at various other places and. All of these women had these NDAs. Oh, my gosh. Right. And, I mean, these NDAs have served no purpose but protecting sexual harassers.
4: Yeah. Now, all of these things that we sort of weirdly got used to, and I say we, it's that when when you're looking for a job, you typically don't say it to your potential employer, and this is true whether you're getting a job in an ad agency or a media company or Burger King and you need a job and your employer, your potential employer says, Hey, I'd really like to hire you, but you have to sign this uh, NDA, most people don't say, don't feel the, the power and they aren't wrong that they can negotiate around that. Right. So there's just this fantasy of meaningful competition in labor markets. And you know, when when you start seeing the rise of all of these coercive terms. It's really strong evidence of gross market power, because if you actually had 20 options, employers wouldn't dare put these terms out there. They'd be trying to offer you better terms instead of more and more coercive terms. So what's exciting to me is that this is an area where, I mean, the bad news and the good news are related. (laughs) The, The bad news is we're in really bad shape in terms of employer abuse of workers. The good news is there's a lot we can do about it. And as the New York attorney general, you know, one of the exciting things about the job is you can, uh, you have incredible investigatory power. And when you see bad actors, you can investigate, make sure they know the penalties and make it too costly for them to engage in illegal behavior. Like, you remember when DoorDash was stealing tips? Oh, yeah. The AG uh, Carl Racine Brought a lot of great lawsuit, shut that down, changed policy for the country because DoorDash now knows they can't get away with it. So the the potential reach of you know progressive enforcement that understands the power of the AG's office against corporate abuses is just enormous and really important. Let's go to a fictitious
2: universe where Donald Trump somehow horrendously gets reelected. And you are AG. What can you do to protect us from
4: him? Well, I actually think we should start right now, even before we're talking about 2024, and say that the New York Attorney General's office dissolved the Trump Foundation, the nonprofit. Do you remember this a couple of years ago? Because it was riddled with illegality. The Trump Organization, the corporate Arm still exists and is totally intertwined as the foundation investigation showed and later civil investigations have shown. The foundation and the Trump organization are totally intertwined with each other and also riddled, riddled with illegality. The New York State AG has shut down companies, corporations organized in New York previously when you have such a degree of persistent lawlessness that you can't separate the fraud from the corporate form. And I think we have the evidence to start an investigation to dissolve the Trump organization, the the sort of key source of power for Donald Trump. So he shouldn't be in a position where he can run for office again using the Trump organization as a power source. The other thing I want to say about whether it's Trump or somebody else who has lawlessness, bigotry and violence at their core is that the the state AGs play absolutely the frontline role in defending democracy and defending the possibility of government doing its job. You know, when you have a federal government, as we had with Donald Trump, which doesn't believe in enforcing its own laws, uh, whether those are anti-discrimination laws or environmental protection laws, the state attorneys general are the protection. And they're, they're both a protection because they can enforce those laws, but also they're a show of what government can do when it's actually fighting for people and representing people to make sure they can't get abused either by elite politicians or by, you know, grossly abusive corporations. So I see the AG's office as sort of as, as one of the most exciting areas for our future in which we have Democratic presidents but regardless of what, what kind of you know Democratic-Republican split we have at the federal level, we need really strong, action-focused AGs in the states. Thank you, Zephyr. Great to talk to you guys. I, I feel like we just got started. Okay, thank you for having me.
3: <laughs> What's crazier than QAnon, more outlandish than Pizzagate, and scarier than a Mexican getaway with Ted Cruz? The answer is what the American right wing has planned next. Be one of the first to listen to Fever Dreams, the new podcast from The Daily Beast tracking the conspiracy slingers, orange acolytes, and straight-up grifters pushing to retake power. Every Wednesday, hosts Swin Subisang and Will Summer checking in on the movement of the radical right. Head to the slash podcasts or your favorite podcast player to catch the first episode and get subscribed. That's Fever Dreams, which you can subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Andy Levy.
3: Molly
0: Jongfest.
2: Who is your fuck that guy?
0: We've got a memo that was now leaked to, I guess, Politico. Uh, and an army colonel named Earl Matthews says that uh, two of the top army uh, generals are, I think he called them unmitigated liars, and, claim, and and is accusing them of making a Stalinist effort to rewrite the history of the the response to the January 6th Insurrection or whatever you riots, whatever you want to call them at the Capitol. And according to Colonel Matthews, these two generals, uh, Charles Flynn and Walter Pyatt have completely lied, and that they are the ones who failed to act decisively and deploy the National Guard, and that the delay in deploying everything is on those two fellow shoulders. So the question here is, uh, or the thing is, if Colonel Matthews is correct, then absolutely fuck those two generals, uh, one of whom is, I guess, the brother of Michael Flynn.
3: Right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> We we we'd be remiss to uh, not remind yeah. people that m- m- might have been some fuckery here.
0: Yeah, so I'm already I'm already inclined to believe Colonel Matthews. I think on this one, so I'm just going to go ahead and say fuck those guys. So Molly, who's your fuck that guy for today?
2: My fuck that guy is a little bit unusual. It is the coverage of Vice President Harris. Rumors started circulating in July, Vice President Harris's staff was witting in a dysfunctional and frustrated office, burned out just a few months after her historic swearing in and pondering exit strategies. There's a lot of, like, soon-to-be-empty desks, and we spoke to 18 people off the record. And there's a lot of this, you know, all these pieces then get picked up. The New York Post then had a headline from this. Kamala Harris described as a bully and soul-destroying. I mean, ex-Harris staffer says AIDS had to endure a constant amount of criticism. Soul-destroying criticism. Fuck you, man. Like, that's the job. I, I just can't imagine, like, a, can you imagine a man... Having his staff complain that they were critical. A lot of criticism. I mean, I'm sorry. She's the vice president. It seems very sexist and racist to me. Andy, do you think it's sexist and racist? And if not, I will reach through the computer and punch
0: you.
3: Mm -hmm. (laughs) In that case, yes, I do, Molly. (laughs) On that note, we'll wrap this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from the Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode.